components is being willing to really set your standards high, um, regardless of what's in front of you, whether you think you can or you can't do it, set your standards high. The other thing I would say is most importantly, be willing to take on a challenge. If you find yourself coasting, um, you're, you're not challenging yourself to grow. University of Alabama's Colfax College of Business at Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories which people both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens on the show today, Kenneth Kelly. Kenneth is the CEO and chairman of First Independence Bank. He's also a graduate from Alabama. He was inducted into Engineering Hall of Fame and is a notable author as well. He sat down to share his story and also a legacy that he wants to leave behind and how he's going about doing that with multiple projects he's working in. I hope you enjoy. How are you doing today, Kenneth? Great to see you, Cole. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Well, let's get started. So where you started, you're from originally from Eufaula, Alabama, correct? That's correct. From Eufaula, Alabama. And your undergrad, I will have to admit, was at a school named? Auburn University. And you graduated with an electrical engineering degree, That's correct, correct 1990. Awesome. And an electrical engineering degree is very unique because you're focusing on the engineering mindset. Could you talk about what that taught you, especially as a student going for your career? Yeah, Cole. So fortunately for me, I was very proficient is the word that I would use with math and science in high school. And so as I was looking at options of where I could apply that, um, engineering was one of those professions where I thought we could easily make that translation. Uh, the irony is I was concerned about engineering, maybe coming from a small town and small town complex. But the reality is once I really applied myself, I did exceptionally well in all of the calculus and differential equations. But as you ask about the mindset, I will tell you one of the things you learn in engineering and particularly math is that most of the things that you will learn can be proven. Um, and so the theorems, et cetera, and it allows you to think about life in a very logical way. And we have seen in many cases where engineers are able to translate that level of logic into professions that are really beyond what you would think is engineering, like attorneys and also in medicine and becoming physicians. So for me, it has been a foundational that foundational base that's allowed me to really explore other options as it came to my career. Now, we're talking about your career in the sense of you worked quite a few years in the power sector of the United States. But you originally actually had a stint up at GM Motors in Michigan, correct? Yes. Um, there are not many people that know that, but um, it was a dream of mine to get to go work for General Motors. I had co-op for Alabama Power Company and had a great experience there. Uh, I worked on the solar car project that we did in Auburn back in the late 80s, early 90s, and we participated in the GM Sun Race. We built a solar car back in 89 and 90, and we raced it against 32 top engineering universities across this country. And so in the midst of that, I got a chance to know some of the individuals at GM and decided to go work there at the Tech Center, which is a mile-by-mile square, 23,000 people on that engineering complex uh, but the irony is what I found is that, you know, culture was very different there for me at GM. I had worked for Alabama Power Company, and I remember vividly calling the gentleman back in Mobile, Alabama, saying, is that job that you offered me still open? And he called me back in 20 minutes and said, as soon as you could get here. And so it was a great decision for me to come back to the state of Alabama and get to work for Alabama Power Company, which was a great career for me. 
And your journey actually ended up bringing you to campus here at Alabama for an assignment, correct? Yes, it did. And, and ironically, Alabama Power Company was a part of that. So Alabama Power had gotten involved in the creation of the Alabama Productivity Center in the 80s in the midst of trying to save a GM plant, ironically, here in the area. And we had had individuals who would come down and serve on two-year stints and work as the associate director under Dr. David Miller. I was selected to do that in 1996 and um, worked just downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Um, Came to work every day working on problems, allowing um, MBA students, masters of engineering, and PhD students to do applied research and working on real-world problems for industries across the state of Alabama. And during that time here, you actually were able to line up an executive MBA. Is that true in the storyline of your career? Yes, it it is. And and that's how I ended up, you know, completing the executive MBA program. So I worked through the week here in Bidgood Hall and on um, Fridays and Saturdays and sometimes for a full week, we were over in the Bryant Conference Center uh, going through the executive MBA program. And as you know, we had one of the top programs in the country. I think it was recently ranked um, number 50 by uh, CEO Magazine. So we have a great affiliation here with the university in that regard. Now, taking an MBA and applying that to an engineering degree, that creates a very dangerous combo because you both have the knowledge behind what you're working on as well as a business acumen. And you ended up taking that to being more of the business side of the power sector, correct? Well, I, I did. So the the beauty of my career, I had actually moved in I started in engineering. I'd worked in the power plants, also worked in distribution engineering, which is the line design and working with uh, retail customers, um, both retail, commercial, industrial, and residential. And what I was able to translate that to is working into marketing. And so when I came on my assignment down here, it allowed me to really make a shift and move into corporate finance. So I was fortunate enough to, when I left the university with my MBA, work in corporate finance and planning for Alabama Power Company. And that really created a unique shift for me when in, in getting the degree uh, from the EMBA program and moving into finance. Finance is a, is a very generalized field, but there's also a law offers a lot of specialization inside of it. Uh, so much so that uh, towards the end of your career in the power sector, you actually were head of uh, mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, well, so yes, I, I had the for- great fortune of actually helping to negotiate and work on solar projects And in that mergers and acquisition role, we were actually dealing with and really negotiating across the table, um, really sizable projects. We did the first solar farm in the state of California on behalf of Southern Company. That was uh, Campo Verde. Uh, We actually negotiated that with the counterparty First Solar, which was really a very unique opportunity for me. We had about 25,000 pages of documents to go through. It was a team of about 50 individuals that included upwards of 13 lawyers who actually had to understand every specific aspect associated with that project, from the legal, the transmission, the environmental, um, the engineering, the operations, the build out of that. And so we had to mitigate a lot of risk working in an environment that was new for us. And understanding that. And so for me, as the leader and the lead negotiator on that, I had to take all of that, which was the essence of really what you learn in and getting an MBA and codify that in such a way that, again, staying high enough to be strategic about it, but also being able to touch those experts to be sure that we didn't have any blind spots in executing a deal like that. I'm taking a step back from your career. Obviously, negotiating something around renewable energy, specifically a solar farm, is very unique. Where do you see the renewable energy sector affecting the power 
you know, industry of the United States now and in the future. It has absolutely changed the the face of what we think about when we think about the generation side of of a power plant. And when you look forward, what you're going to see, I think, is more renewables. I believe I saw a stat the other day that said solar energy um, in terms of new generation on the grid surpassed uh, the, some of the other um, generation sources. And so we have to just really understand that, you know, when we look forward and look into the future, renewable energy is going to be a component of that. And how fast we really lean into that is extremely important in terms of what we think about when we look at climate change. You wrap up this acquisition and then you make it the jump into the banking sector. What really triggered that transition or what caused you to make that jump? Well, it's one of those things I would tell you leading to where maybe you used it while we were recording or if not, but legacy. And so for me, I was approaching the age of 50, which would allow me to retire um, from a Southern Company. And, and I was thinking about, you know, what is the latter half of my life going to be like? And when I say latter half, I don't expect to live 50 years, but this was a great demarcation in recognizing that it was time that I could do something very different. And so I was very fortunate in being able to retire from Southern Company. I had a wonderful career there, made a lot of great friends and still in contact with many of them. But for me, going into the banking sector was one that really ties into the, I'll call it, the learning that I gained inside of Southern Company. And when you think about it, you know, both of those industries are regulated. Uh, what is most important that most people don't know is that there are more regulations on the books in the utility space than there are in the banking space. And so for me, it was, again, now applying what I had learned as a leader in dealing with understanding how to build a culture, how to help create a vision that we can move an organization to be successful in obtaining the goals of the stakeholders. And so that transition took place when, you know, I just turned 50 years old. That's that transition to the banking sector, like you said, is a big one, a big pivot for your legacy per, personally. What effect do you want to have through the banking sector in your career, especially as CEO, being the strategic head of a company, especially of a bank? Well, for me, it is one of those things that really rings the bell when we think about equity along racial lines in this country. There are approximately 17 African-American owned and controlled banks in the country out of about 5,000. When you look at the assets we control, is very minuscule, relatively speaking. And so what we know is that you can't go to any city and not find one of the tallest buildings in that city having the name of a bank on it. And the banks represent beacons of hope. And we, in our small space in the banking sector, really want to represent a beacon of hope as you think about that along the demarcation of race. And so for me, every day I'm thinking about how do we increase opportunity for individuals who may be one step removed from the banking sector. We still have a high degree and unfortunately um, overweight unbalance of African-Americans who don't have bank accounts. And we need to close that gap. We need to talk about that more often. So what you've seen from me and the leadership at the National Bankers Association, where I was chairman and now serving on the board of the American Bankers Association, has really been advocacy to be sure we create more inclusion around this topic of banking. Uh, one example of execution of that on our strategy is on this upcoming Tuesday, we'll be opening a branch in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, eventually, we'll open a second branch a little bit later this year. That branch will be just north and to the east of where George Floyd was killed. That city has welcomed us with open arms. That's been really unprecedented. We've had uh, five banks, which represent about 80% of the market, who have welcomed 
us into the market. We've worked with them over a year in planning this. And so I'm very excited about the opportunity of what this means, not only to the city of Minneapolis, but actually to this country. And so we're very excited about what we're doing. And while we know these are small pebbles being thrown into the ocean, so to speak, if I could use that metaphorically, we're hopeful that those ripples will start to make some change and have an impact on the communities that we serve. It seems like the approach you're, you're looking at right now is more of a bottom-up approach. How do we really reach out to those people that need the, the help, need the accessibility? For, for you, looking at your position of power, is that the strategy is really to try to reach out on ground and also using the, the new financial tools that we have available that weren't available decades before? Well, it's, it's about education. And when you think about that and the history, unfortunately, when you look at it in our country, it's been very challenged when it comes to the issues of race and money, going all the way back to the Freedmen's Bank, which was created under uh, President Abraham Lincoln at the emancipation. Uh, but what we know now is we have to look forward. And what I am trying to do as a leader is being sure that we are planting seeds that demonstrate a forward-looking motion and being sure we can be as inclusive as possible when we think about these financial resources and tools, as you just mentioned just a moment ago. Now, taking a step back and looking at your career as a whole, uh, you obviously were executive at Power Sector. You moved over to now CEO. And now recently, you were actually a published author. Uh, the book you did publish was uh, Prepared Before I Let Go. Could you give an overall summary of what this book was to you and why you decided to write it? Yeah, I will tell you. It's one of the reasons I'm here on campus and speaking a little bit later tonight. But for me, what resonated is that when you think about the lives that we touch, a lot of times we work all of our lives to acquire possessions. And those possessions could be land, it could be houses or cars, et cetera. And in many cases, I have found that individuals have had, if not themselves personally, one degree away, an instance where maybe the planning associated with passing those possessions didn't take place properly. CNBC just came out with, I think, last week, and, and CNBC just came out last week and showed that, in particularly in the African-American community, 30%, only 30% of individuals have a will in place. So when you think about that, and I'll tell you, the national average is not much higher. But when you think about that and you think about, you know, as you and I were talking about my father and his work ethic so many years ago, the reality is you think about someone who worked all of their life, 30 years, 40 years. And when things have to go through the probate process, uh, it creates friction, meaning a loss of value associated with whatever that accumulation is. And so we decided to write about that. I had one of the premier uh, I would say, leaders in the financial space to provide the foreword on my book on this issue. We write about individuals such as James Brown, Prince, John Singleton, Chad Bozeman, Amy Winehouse, and Michael Jackson. And we show really the good and the bad of what happens with the planning process here. But we also write about everyday people uh, that call in a way that I would like to share because it doesn't matter how much money you have. The, the, the need is to identify that you need to do some planning here to be sure that whether that's a $40,000 house or a $200,000 house, that it passes without the friction of having to go through the court system and the probate process. So that's what our book is about. The latter part of the book also focused on not only just the possessions, but our philosophies. One of mine is giving is a part of living. I write about that because I want my kids to know that's important to me. It's the reason that I contribute to scholarships at Auburn and at the University of Alabama, because that is important to me. Both of those universities pay the opportunity for me to be who I am today. And that's my way of saying thank you. 
And just from knowing you from the little bit that we've talked, but also the research I've done, you seem to have a very incredible work ethic. And we did touch upon this before, talking about your your father who worked in a, a paper mill. What was that like growing up with, with a father who was so hardworking and such an impactful person on you? Well, I tried to in, internalize his work ethic. And to be candid with you, uh, a lot of days I probably come up short relative to his standard, but he was a great provider for our family and uh, really worked hard every day. And as I said, he worked in that paper mill. And, and, and fortunately, one of the uh, stimulants for me was when I finished my first year at Auburn, I had a chance to go and work at that exact mill where he worked that summer. And I will tell you, it was great for about two weeks after I got the first paycheck. I thought I was rich. But the reality is I recognize, and I just can't say it any way, but with a lot of respect, I recognize God did not cut me out to do that every day. And so I went back with an expired and really enthused attitude about my work in school and applied myself in ways that I probably had not gravitated the fortitude to really apply myself. And so the things that I was concerned about, maybe from a small town mentality in terms of calculus and watching kids from big schools struggle with calculus, I made straight A's in calculus and differential equations when I went back that second year because I was really inspired and that stimulated from that work ethic that you just talked about. Now we're looking at your own your personal life, especially during this book, you're sharing you know, the vision you want for future generations coming up and how you think, you know, they should really approach future planning. You yourself has obviously had a very successful career. And when looking at that, is there any advice you give the current generation, my generation that's in school right now, before we even get started in our careers, what should we have on top of mind looking at our own legacies, even though we're just starting out? Yeah, I, I would tell you, and it probably um, goes back to, some of the things we, we've talked about and you and I talked about me doing a commencement speech and there were some components of that that I think that all of us could really um, take to heart as we mature. And one of those components is being willing to really set your standards high um, regardless of what's in front of you, whether you think you can or you can't do it, set your standards high. The other thing I would say is most importantly, be willing to take on a challenge. If you find yourself coasting um, you're, you're not challenging yourself to grow. And so you need those challenges in life. And a lot of times they feel really bad. They feel really heavy. But that is preparing you for the next opportunity to be successful. And I would say take on challenges. And then the last thing I would say in that regard is to think about, you know, your character along the way. Um, what does that mean? What does it represent? How does it represent you? And, and how do you make decisions? Uh, there are many who would say they're givers and takers in life. Um, you know, the, the reality is I plan to be a giver is part of why I talk about legacy uh, quite a bit. And, and I'm hopeful that others will be thinking about what are those things that that will be part of your principles and your core along the way, because you're going to get challenged morally ethically and legally in life. And, and those things just come at us sometimes, not because we are looking for them, but they're just the, the circumstances of the environment. Um, and that's work life and home life. And so you have to have a, a sense of knowing who you are. It's the way I try to raise my kids, such that when you encounter those, you have a sense of value to kind of be your true north to make, to make hopefully good decisions. Now, obviously you just mentioned your kids. You mentioned you have a family. 
What is one couple things that really bring happiness in your daily life right now, especially being so busy as a CEO? What do you really take a step back at and just smile when you think about it? Well, I'm proud of both of my kids right now. And um, it's one of those I was having a conversation with a colleague I hadn't talked to in a long time in my travels over here. And uh, we were just reminiscing how he was part of my life and, and helped me in the transition of moving from Birmingham to Atlanta some 18 years ago. And he remembered my kids being arm babies, so to speak. And now they're both out of the house and my nest is empty. Uh, I would tell you for, for both of them, they have far exceeded my expectations. My daughter is a junior at Florida A&M University with the intent of going to medical school. She was their White House scholar, the only undergraduate selected in the whole university to be a White House scholar this past year. Congratulations Again, on that. Th thank you. So we, we're very proud of her and the way she's applied herself. Uh, my son is a freshman here at the University of Alabama. And actually just last week, he was selected as a capstone man as a freshman. And so he has done well academically and also getting engaged socially. So we're very proud of them. And to be candid with you, you know, there are phases of life. I'm in that phase of life now to where we're really trying to pour into them and be sure that they can be successful and achieve their wishes and their dreams. Obviously, congratulations to your son. That's a huge position here on campus. I know a lot of people who try for it, and it's a very testing process. Well, it is, and um, he has he has put in the work, I think, and and really just demonstrated that the the values that he emulates hopefully align with the University of Alabama, and he can be a, an ambassador for the university hopefully years to come. That's amazing. And wrapping up our conversation right here, looking at your book, obviously talking about legacy, and you've talked about routine, repeatedly on this, con this conversation here, your own legacy. When we look at, at Alabama, obviously everyone has their own experience when they come here, that being undergrad, grad school, even their doctoral degrees. What is one memory that's going to stick with you that you've been granted because of Alabama? Wow, that's a pretty um, daunting one. I, I would have to say, and this is going to sound so cliche-ish, but it's the reality and it's the people. And let me start with the one that I would tell you had an impact on me in ways that I'm not sure he will ever understand. And, and this gentleman does this for a lot of people. So I'm not saying that his behavior is unique to me, but I think there'll be a lot of people in this listening audience who could resonate with what I'm about to say. And that is Dean Mason. Uh, Dean Mason was one of the reasons that I decided to pursue the EMBA program while I was here. And he was a dean. Uh, I would tell you he's one that I have a high regard and a high level of respect for. But I would tell you, if you move past my graduation, uh, Connie Chambers, who we just saw a moment ago, has been one of the connective tissues that has kept me tied to the university and just the way she handled herself. And I would tell you, and there will be people who may not appreciate this, she knows that I, I grew up at Auburn where I showed up with a suitcase and an alarm clock. She always demonstrated a level of respect for me being an Auburn guy, but she also welcomed me as a guy who's from the University of Alabama. And so for her, I will always be grateful to her in that regard. And so I will tell you at the end of the day, these buildings are just buildings. It, it matters in terms of what it, the meaning really is really based on the relationships and the people. And those are just two examples that I want to share with you. And wrapping up this conversation here, where can everyone find your book, uh, Prepared Before I Let Go, if they want to pick up a copy? Yeah, well, we, we've got it in a couple of places now. One, uh, we have our own website. It's called www.beforeiletgo.com. And it's also on Amazon. And so uh, we're very excited about it. And what I haven't shared, though, is not only did we write a book about 
this issue, we created a technology platform that will really democratize it and make it affordable for everyday families. So for me, this was very important to be sure not to just talk about an issue, but now create an application for individuals to leverage and utilize. So if you go to mylegacyitems.com, www.mylegacyitems.com, you will see a platform there where an individual or family, meaning a husband and wife, for $49.95, you can create your own will, healthcare directive, and power of attorney. Everything will be stored electronically. We set it up in such a manner that if you put your home address in there, if you own your home, it will automatically retrieve that data from Zillow and show you the value inside of your estate. All of your bank accounts can be linked through secure APIs, just like any of the other programs, money management and or TurboTax. And so you could really lay all of that out in such a manner that all of your um, respective members or your um, executive or executive executor of your estate could follow through on your wishes and they have it all in one place. So the stories that I write about in the book, we also created an application to really amplify how you can execute on that with mylegacyitems.com. That's Kenneth Kelly, CEO, author, and member of the Engineering Hall of Fame. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.